Hey, everybody, this is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. Watch me! Watch me! I got it! Watch me! This, of course, is the godfather of soul and inventor of funk, James Brown with Superbad. As regular listeners to Hit Parade The Bridge are well aware, we named these episodes not only after the bridge of a song, but also after the invocation by James Brown of the bridge in his funk workouts with backing band The JBs. The classic call-out of The Bridge happens in 1970's Sex Machine, in which James rhetorically asks his band if he can take it to The Bridge. But the follow-up single, Superbad, was an even bigger hit. Bridge! Come on! A number 13 pop, number one R&B smash in the late fall of 1970. That just edges out Sex Machine, which peaked at number 15 pop, number two R&B. And in Superbad, Soul Brother number one calls out the bridge not once, but twice. Bridge! Superbad was James Brown's biggest hit of the 70s, the peak decade of funk. And he wouldn't top that Hot 100 peak until his early 1986 hit, Living in America, went all the way to number four. Still, Superbad, with its fierce funk groove, including a bass line by the legendary Bootsy Collins, ranks as one of the funkiest top 40 hits of all time. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to expand on those episode topics, and enjoy some trivia. This month, I'm thrilled to welcome an expert in, as she puts it, reclaimed soul. Ayana Contreras is the host and music director of the Chicago radio show Reclaimed Soul. She has also served as the producer of the public radio show Sound Opinions and, previously, The Barbershop Show and Audra Wilson's Practically Speaking. She is a frequent guest on All Songs Considered. And, as the author of the 2021 book Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago, Ayana says the ultimate goal of her work is to, quote, get people to reevaluate the undervalued vestiges of our past. Ayana Contreras, welcome to The Bridge. Thanks so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you. And I want to start right off with your center of expertise. I should say your place of expertise, because, of course, your book is all about Chicago specifically. Uh, you are not only a big booster of classic soul and funk, but also your hometown. So can I talk to you first about what makes Chicago unique? Well, I mean, I think in terms of Black creativity, which is really the center of that particular book, it just happens to be at the center of a city that is equally influential, in my opinion, in the realms of blues, gospel, and jazz, all of which helped deeply shape soul and house and all of the genres that were to come out of this space. Chicago also being the second largest city in the country for many years, had the highest concentration of African-American people. So there just was like a crush of folks. And yeah, it's just a 
beautiful place to be. You know, among the artists I discuss in this latest hit parade episode about 70s funk are Curtis Mayfield, Earth, Wind & Fire, and Rufus, all of whom are native to Chicago. So I know you cover Curtis quite a bit in the book, right. but what do they bring to the table that's unique if we're looking at, you know, 70s music in particular? It's interesting because all three of those groups, you can see the seeds of what they became in other groups and other scenes and disparate scenes, right? So all of them, to your point, really deeply like made impacts in the funk arena, but Curtis Mayfield came from gospel-influenced soul music, right? Earth, Wind & Fire, I mean, Maurice White, one of the founders, he was, he played with Ramsey Lewis in the Ramsey Lewis Trio. Right? Right. So, I mean, and Rufus actually came out of a, a rock group called American Breed. It kind of shows how ambidextrous a lot of Chicago artists were and are, the ability to really be strong in a lot of different genres simultaneously. Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, in the episode, I talk about Curtis Mayfield, you know, starting with the impressions. He's, you know, a premier voice in civil rights era soul. And then with Kurtom, which he founds at the turn of the 70s, late 60s, he's kind of pivoting toward where the music is headed next. So, you know, it was a remarkably influential label in 70s music. And how did it help shift the music from the soul era to the funk era? I think, to your point, it was his label, right? Like, I think that's the most important part. So in the 1960s, uh, the impressions were signed to ABC Paramount, which was, you know, a major label at that point. And by 1968, he had dabbled in doing solo, you know, independent labels, but for other artists. And he knew that what he wanted to do for himself was maybe edgier. So he was able to do this experimentation that, to your point, really set up a whole nother template for what Black music could become. And some of that he couldn't even do within the impressions because, you know, Fred and Sam were somewhat conservative in what they wanted to sing about. That was really the impetus of why he decided to go solo. Right. And even before he does his landmark with Superfly, I mean, the Curtis album, which is itself a landmark, I mean, he's got tracks on there like If There's a Hell Below. He's not mincing words, right? I mean, it's pretty bold, both musically and lyrically. Exactly. I mean, I like to say that the album Curtis really uh, typifies what it was to be a Black man in America, maybe even specifically Chicago, in 1970. Like, every single aspect is covered. Love, connection to the community, uh, hopes and dreams, and, you know, like, oppression. Like, every theme that you could think of, he expresses. Like, the real measure of a man. It's a powerful, powerful album, and arguably more powerful than Superfly, although Superfly is a masterpiece. It absolutely is. One thing I observed putting my episode together was that the Midwest in general 
was vital to the development of funk. Not just what Curtis was doing in Chicago, not just what Earth, Wind & Fire were doing, but, you know, in Ohio, you had Lakeside, of course, the Ohio players, even the white funk band Wild Cherry. So what do you think makes the middle of America such a unique funk breeding ground? The Great Migration. <laughs> right. I mean, that's I, it. Right. Honestly. Yes. Like that, that refreshing of the black population during that pivotal period, I think more than anything else helped a lot. But then you're also forgetting. Don't forget about uh, Detroit with Parliament and Funkadelic. I mean, here, goodness here. gracious, like, right. That's a whole center. The Westbound record label was where the Ohio players really came to be known. Right. It's interesting because, you know, as much as I'm a booster for Chicago, I wouldn't say that Chicago is a funk town. It's really more of a soul town. So in your work and in the music you play, where do you see funk fitting into the spectrum of pop and R&B and soul? I mean, personally, I hear it across 70s music, even stuff that's not funk per se, like Philly soul or disco. Absolutely. I mean, I think funk is that backbeat, right? Like that bass-centered, bass-forward music, which not only was it kind of impossible to do technologically before the 1970s, I mean, you know, the, the limited track recording systems just didn't allow for it. The hi-fi systems wouldn't accept it, right? I think it's in a lot of, quote, Black music, but it is a specific accent, you know, and in the 70s, many funk acts and black acts in general felt they had to address or contend with disco as disco rose through the clubs from the Commodores to Earth, Wind and Fire. Would you say this was a net positive for the music in that decade? And, and how did Chicago acts contend with disco? Not well. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I that's think... part of why I'm asking. I, it was a struggle I found when I was putting this episode together. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough. I mean, disco in general was rough. It was interesting because disco was so remarkably popular at one point, like incredibly popular. Just in terms of crossover music, it became a type of pop music for a period of time, even though it was seen as being primarily black music. But it was actually dramatically different than soul acts. And a lot of the soul musicians that were, you know, primarily doing slow jams or even mid-tempo music really struggled to get crossover hits during this time period. Yeah, I mean, that was what I tracked is that it's kind of like all of these early 70s acts had differing contentions with disco in the late 70s. If it's, you know, a group like the Commodores, they're shifting toward balladry. If it's a group like Cool and the Gang, they tried disco and then they kind of moved to this 80s crossover R&B. It's kind of like everybody has their own take on what to do about disco. Uh, maybe Earth, Wind & Fire were the most successful because they actually incorporated disco into the stew of what they did. Right. And they had amazing arrangers. Charles Stepney was one of those arrangers in the mid-70s when they really broke through. Unfortunately, he passed away in 1976, possibly right when disco was really entering the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, the second arranger that they had who was doing horns was Tom Tom Washington, who, although he, I've talked to him before, and I don't think that he would consider himself an aficionado of disco, but he was able to arrange songs like Boogie Wonderland. Boogie Wonderland. 
in September and keep people moving. So, I mean, I think he definitely was a silent partner in that enterprise. Right. That's the thing about EWF is that, I mean, yes, Maurice White was the instigator, but they really were like a collective, right? I mean, b- between the Phoenix Horns and obviously Philip Bailey, and I mean, it, just the strength and the depth of that group. As I was putting this episode together, I, I really found it remarkable how how deep the talent ran in that group. 100%. And their jazz chops were like par excellence too, right? So there was like this, to your point, that depth, it's amazing to see. And a lot of that music really, you know, stands up. I would argue that Cool the Gang and his peak also had that going for them. They didn't make household names out of a lot of the members of the band, unfortunately. But really, when you listen to older albums by them, like Spirit of the Boogie, incredible. Right, Spirit of the Boogie, Wild and Peaceful, and all the singles off of that album. It's like they became a different band. Robert Cool Bell was the founder of the band, but then he brings in James J.T. Taylor as a lead singer. One thing I didn't realize until I studied all of this was that Before J.T. Taylor, there really was no one lead singer of Cool in the Gang. And it's kind of like there's a before J.T. Taylor and an after J.T. Taylor. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, those 60s and early 70s bands that were like really bands, they weren't just like vocal acts. They tended to not be as vocally driven in their recordings. You can even go back to like Junior Walker and the All-Stars, right? Like that was sort of the way that those bands came about. But then there became bands like Heat Wave, which killed the game. But Heat Wave, all you can hear is <laughs> vocals on almost every single song. So I think, you know, when they were moving forward into the 80s and they were trying to figure out where they would fit in, the writing was on the wall in terms of instrumental forward music, at least on black radio, but also on pop radio. I think it was, you know, a smart move, but it definitely changed the flavor of that band. You know, I only briefly addressed the influence of funk on hip hop in this episode, because frankly, as I say in the episode, if I did that, I'd have to contend with decades of influence. But obviously, the foundation is profound, right? How do you see hip hop culture flowing out of everything that was brewing in the 70s? Well, you know, years ago, I talked to Grandmaster Flash. I was, you know, co-hosting a show and he came in and what he said was that when a lot of those early foundational hip hop DJs were trying to select records, physical records to sample, they would look at the grooves to see which ones had a deeper bass in it. Like you could physically see it. I think it was, this was visible on the yeah. surface of the record. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it looked a little bit lighter <laughs> for where the wow. accent of the beat was. So he would select those. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, like disco and funk in general, but f- like funk specifically in the 70s had more of a bass 
uh, forward production style and drum forward production style. So they were utilizing those particular tracks, even if they weren't necessarily hits. Because he also said that he was quick to go into the dime bin or quarter bin to select music. It definitely wasn't about what was popular in its day. And of course, a guy like Flash is probably looking for two copies of a record because he's actually physically mixing records on the fly. Right there, that's what we call scratch phase. Actually being on the beat itself and manipulating my wrists back and forth. Correct. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the interesting thing about that was he did that for us in studio and he had a grease pencil, a white grease pencil out with him. He had marked the bass lines on each of those black records so that he could physically see where he needed to cue the records up. That's amazing because I had somebody on the show back when we did our remix episode about uh, nine or ten months ago who said that grease pencils were also the the tool of art for guys like Shep Pettibone who are working with tape. But the idea that they were using grease pencils right on the surface of the record, that's amazing. Kind of frightening, but yes. It, it, it was, <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because what sort of item can you use on vinyl to make a delible mark but something like that with that texture? It also reminds me to reiterate a point you made earlier that the technology had to advance for funk to become what it was, right? Because those bass heavy arrangements, until the LP, you know, achieves the fidelity that it does in, say, the late 60s, early 70s, it's kind of impossible for that heavy funk to be accurately captured on vinyl, right? Yeah. I mean, not only was it not accurately captured, the idea of playing it uh, you know, with that depth and breadth didn't happen until much later. Power meters and a DC power supply for richer bass. It's things like this that have made Pioneer number one among people who care about music. I mean, we could even go as far as the 80s. I remember when Tell Me If You Still Care by the SOS Band came out. At the end, there's that part, listen to my heartbeat, boom, boom, boom. Most stereos couldn't even really, like, (laughs) recreate how deep that bass was for that moment. But now it almost sounds flat. Right. And the the needle would jump out of the groove with bass like that. I mean... With the needle, the turntable technology changed pretty dramatically. At one point, they were primarily ceramic-based cartridges, which could not handle that level of bass. And that changed later on. Yet again, it's uh, the same old story how technology to some extent, drives the actual content. I mean, dating back to, you know, the, the length of a side of a record back in the 30s determined the lengths of songs. Similarly, the development of the LP makes funk possible, essentially. Right. Or the invention of the electric keyboards and synthesizers dramatically changed modern music. Every single genre is different. Right. Picture Stevie Wonder playing, you know, the clavinet. Right. Although you notice he only played the clavinet for a hot minute because that is a really challenging instrument to maintain. So it is, to your point, yeah, it's quite interesting. Sort of, it'd be a fun parlor game, the what if. What if this had never been invented? What would not have been begat? You know, where do you see funk's influence today? I pointed out that, you know, there was a Silk Sonic hit just this year that was a cover of a Confunction song. She says, sugar, honey, darling. 
course, the Gap Band's Charlie Wilson is still scoring hits even today. Do you see other evidence of the music's fingerprints? It's interesting because now it's 100% in the DNA, and sometimes it's samples of samples of samples, <laughs> which right. I think is quite, quite humorous. But yeah, I mean, maybe even just the song structures are still kind of influenced by that and the overarching attitude more so than the actual vestiges of those original soul songs and funk songs in the music at this point. Because I do think that although sampling has kind of had a resurgence, I don't think that sampling is as central a part of hip hop as it was even in the early 90s. I do think that the production style has changed, at least for now. It's all cyclical, right? Right. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thanks again, Ayana, for taking the time to talk with us. And of course, I want to encourage folks to pick up your book, Energy Never Dies. And what's the best way for folks to keep up with your work? Do you care to share your Twitter handle or? Absolutely. On Twitter, I'm at Reclaimed Soul. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Fantastic. Well, Ayana, thanks so much for joining us on Hit Parade the Bridge. Thanks so much, Chris. Now comes the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining me from Cedar Park, Texas is Tim. Hi, Tim. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks, Chris. So I understand that you have put on some trivia nights for your students. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. So um, I've always really liked trivia and uh, wanted to spread it into my job and to start putting together some pub quiz style trivia. Uh, we converted that into a virtual trivia thing over when we were closed during the core of the pandemic. And actually last night, um, brought back and did a public trivia at a movie theater here in town. So really into that kind of thing and really enjoy it. Oh my gosh. How did the trivia go at the movie theater? It was good. It was our first attempt to do anything like that. So I was sitting there beforehand, like no one's coming to this, <laughs> but they, they came, they had a good time. <laughs> we had fun. It was nice. And I hear on the music side, you're a bit of a Billy Joel fan. Is that accurate? Yes, that is accurate. I, I think it's from growing up, the uh, Innocent Man album was in my parents' collection and sort of really caught on to that. Um, and some of the, my favorite stuff came out years before I was born, but then just really held on to it. I'm a piano player too, and so like his songwriting, like his playing. I've only gotten to see him once. I still want to try to make it out to Madison Square Garden to see him there. Hopefully he'll continue that residency long into the future and I still have some chances. <laughs> I mean, that residency just keeps going on and on. I caught it about mm, three or four years ago myself before the pandemic, and he's brought it right back after the pandemic. So you may get your chance. Yes, I'm hoping for it. Awesome. Well, Tim, I think you know how this works. First of all, I want to thank you for being a Slate Plus subscriber. And of course, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you, Slate Plus member, would like to be a trivia contestant, please visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. All right, so of course, as usual, I'm going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent episode of Hit Parade, and the next two will be a preview of the following episode of Hit Parade. And then at the end, if you're ready to turn the tables on me, I'll give you the opportunity to ask me a trivia question. Are you ready for some trivia? Yes, I am. All right, question one. 
In our last episode, I talked about several chart-topping funk albums, but only one of these albums was the number one album of an entire year, according to Billboard magazine. Which was it? A. War, The World is a Ghetto. B. The Ohio Players, Fire. C. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Gratitude. Or D. Curtis Mayfield, Superfly. That one's tough. I'm leaning towards C and D, uh, thinking through because of how important Superfly was. But I think it's, for me, it's hard to get past Earth, Wind, and Fire, so I'm going to go with C. And I'm sorry, but the correct answer was neither of those. It was A, The World is a Ghetto by War. The Latin funk band's late 72 LP was the top album of 1973, according to Billboard, and it gave War a pair of top 10 hits on the Hot 100, the title track and the Cisco Kid. All right, 0 for 1, but you've got two more chances to make it up. Are you ready for some preview trivia? Let's go. Question two. Which of these British New Wavers was the first to score an American Top 40 hit? A. Nick Lowe B. Elvis Costello C. Joe Jackson or D. Graham Parker uh, You said Top 40? American Top American 40 hit, top correct. 40. Yes. Just sort of thinking through timelines, I'm going to have to go with B. Elvis Costello. And I'm sorry, the correct answer was C, Joe Jackson. His hit, Is She Really Going Out With Him, cracked the American Top 40 in July 1979, just one month before Nick Lowe's Cruel To Be Kind. Elvis Costello wouldn't crack the U.S. Top 40 until 1983, and Graham Parker not until 1985. All right. All right, one more chance. Here we okay. go. Now you know the theme. Let's see what you can do with question three. Yes. What Elvis Costello song, co-written with a Beatle, was his highest-charting U.S. hit, cracking the Hot 100's Top 20 and topping the modern rock chart. A. My Brave Face B. Veronica C. Every Day I Write the Book Or D. What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding Trying to piece together which Beatle it might be, um, <laughs> but I think I'm going to have to go with D. What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding and I'm sorry, the correct answer was B, Veronica. Co-written with Paul McCartney, Costello's hit reached number 19 pop and number one on the alt-rock chart. Costello and McCartney also wrote My Brave Face, but that was a hit for McCartney that reached number 25 pop. Costello wrote the top 40 hit Every Day I Write the Book by himself, and Peace, Love, and Understanding was penned by Costello's friend, Nick Lowe. Oh my goodness, Tim, I'm so sorry that we blanked you. No, that's okay. <laughs> but now... Here's your opportunity to get your revenge. Do you have a trivia question for me? Yes, I do. All right. Lay it on me. All right. So some might be familiar with the exclusive club of EGOT winners, people who have earned an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony. But since this is a hit parade, I want it to make an even more exclusive group of those EGOT winners to the ones who have also had a number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Ooh, okay. For our purposes here, um, they could be a performer, a writer, a composer. They don't have to just be the performer, just it's their song. Okay. So of these four, who is the only one who has earned both an EGOT and gotten a Billboard Hot 100 number one? A, Andrew Lloyd Webber. B, Jennifer Hudson. C, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Or D, Richard Rogers. Oh, Wow. Okay. I'm 
torn between C and D because if we're going right up to the present day, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote We Don't Talk About Bruno, which went to number one earlier this year. However, Richard Rogers, I believe he got songwriting credit on a sample because isn't Rogers and Hammerstein, aren't they the co-writers of My Favorite Things, which would give you Seven Rings by Ariana Grande? Given that toss-up, and maybe I'm somehow confusing my Broadway composing teams, I'm going to go with C, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it actually was D. Um, you, <laughs> you did reason it out correctly. Uh, going through him, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, the best he got, he has the EGOT, but the best he got was number eight with the Madonna remix of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Um, right. Jennifer Hudson is the most recent EGOT. She got producing credit for A Strange Loop, but uh, Hot 100 is 24. Lin-Manuel did get the number one. We don't talk about Bruno, but he still doesn't have an Oscar. Um, right. I, he's not an EGOT. I forgot yeah. about that detail. He, Good point. he lost out both on Encanto to Billie Eilish and on Moana to La La Land. But Richard Rodgers, you had it exactly right. That that He was the first EGOT. Um, but my favorite things was the sample for Seven Rings. And so I, I could not find early days if like some random song from South Pacific hit number one, but they did get a number one for Seven Rings. So it's Richard Rogers. That's fantastic. First of all, I mean, okay, I want to compliment you on that question because it's ingenious because you tricked me into forgetting that Lynn doesn't have an EGOT. I completely forgot about that aspect. I ruled that out. So that was my bad. Second of all, I think... If we're including South Pacific, I do think there may have been a pre-Hot 100 number one, but you were asking about the Hot 100, and there's none in the history of the Hot 100. So I think you're on solid ground there with, uh, with Seven Rings and My Favorite Things. So I call this uh, an even-steven round of trivia. You, I blanked you, you blanked me, but, you know, not bad on either side, right? Uh, yep. we, we asked some good, tough questions. Yes, definitely. Had some fun at the same time. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on Hit Parade the Bridge. Thank you for having me. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so So, as those last two trivia questions indicate, our next episode of Hit Parade will be about the angry young men and the history of power pop and pub rock. Though they scored only a handful of pop hits among them, the UK triumvirate of Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, and Graham Parker formed a distinctive post-punk scene at the turn of the 70s into the 80s. The rock press back at the time dubbed them the angry young men. Nick Lowe, a producer, songwriter, and an artist in his own right, produced both Costello and Parker and was also pivotal to this scene. These men were the culmination of several scenes that had bubbled up around rock in the 70s. Power pop, what is called in the UK pub rock, and of course, eventually, new wave. These scenes produced much bigger hitmakers from the knack to the police. But these British New Wave troubadours earned the most critical acclaim for their willingness to follow their muse. Reggae rhythms, R&B covers, classical arrangements, jump blues and jazz, these guys tried it all. 
By the 80s, they were scoring actual pop hits with urbane wordplay, crisp melodies, and high-toned production. By the 90s, one of these men even stumbled into a late-career jackpot thanks to, of all people, Whitney Houston. I will explain. The scruff of the pub meets the pretensions of high culture. That is what we'll be discussing in our November episode of Hit Parade, coming at you in a few weeks. This episode of Hit Parade the Bridge was produced by Kevin Bendis, and I'm Chris Melanfi. Keep on marching on the one.